Oh dear. Hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J, and in this episode, I chat with Teresa Wu, Head of Engineering at Tide. We talk about how she got started, why she left contract work for a permanent job, all about BDD, what being lead engineer entails versus just being a senior developer, becoming a T-shaped developer, her thoughts on Flutter, and much, much more. Now on to the show. So before we get into today's episode, a little bit of housekeeping. So I've had a bunch of questions this week asking me various things about development. How do you get into development? How do you make the jump from permanent to contract work? How much do you expect to charge as a contractor? How long do contracts last? I've had people asking me for help with their CVs and I've actually given someone some pretty good pointers on their CV and they're going to be sending it to me when they're finished doing it so that I can review it. So um, with all that in mind and kind of on the basis of trying to help more than just a couple of people, I'm thinking of hosting a live Q&A with me for people to ask me anything AMA you call it an AMA I guess but um, essentially to help you guys out so if you have questions about contracting or development or how do you get a job or what can make your CV better or what kind of architecture do I like to use or what do I think of Flutter or any questions that you might be interested to ask me you can sign up for the live Q&A at coffeeencodingpod.com slash live QA. I'm probably going to limit the numbers to like roughly 20 or 30 people. So if you do want to attend, then I would suggest you go on coffeeencodingpod.com slash Q&A like right now, because I imagine it will probably go pretty quickly if people are interested. And if nobody's interested, then you might get lucky and it might just be a one-on-one. And on that note, I'm also considering depending on how this goes, either making this a monthly thing, which will either be free or through a Patreon subscription. And if it is free, I'm also thinking of offering a Patreon type subscription for um, a one-on-one session with me. So if you guys have questions that you want to ask me, if you want to bring me your CV and your LinkedIn and you want me to go through it in detail, or you want me to help you with interview prep or anything like that, then um, that's also something that I'm contemplating doing. So if that's something that people are interested in, then please email me at rob at coffeeencodingpod.com and just, you know, register your interest or hit me up on LinkedIn, robj.me slash LinkedIn or Twitter at lowcarbrob on Twitter, wherever you want to find me. And I would say whomever registers their interest will do some sort of deal. So, you know, you get your first month free or you get your subscription half price or whatever it is. I'm not entirely sure what we're going to do yet, if anything. But if that does come to fruition, then whoever reaches out to register their interest will definitely get some sort of benefit from that. And if anybody has any other ideas or any other things that they would like to see from me, um, then please, you know, get in touch. You have all the details. I just mentioned them. So go for it. Um, and then finally, before we get into t- today's show, so I use Squadcast to do my podcast recording, but unfortunately there was some sort of bug with the latest version of the browser that I use that meant that Squadcast didn't record my side of the audio for this conversation so you guys are basically going to have to listen to Teresa's side of the audio for this conversation and then you probably just figure out the questions I asked her in the end yeah no I'm just kidding so Squadcast actually did lose the audio from my side of the conversation so what we had to do was get the backup so apologies for the quality of the audio it's not terrible but it's not up to my usual standard but unfortunately there was not much that I can do about that but hopefully going forward there should be no more issues Um, and with all that being said on to the show
I um, heard your, your talk on Mobile London, which is, is where I found out about you. And then I thought you'd make for a really interesting guest. And it said on your LinkedIn that you do Android. So I was like, okay, cool. This, this could be fun. <laughs> okay, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will be. I'm sure it will be. So just, just to get started, so just for people who don't know you and for people who maybe, I should say, didn't catch that talk, could you just go into a little bit about how did you get into Android, kind of how did you get your start in tech and, and just a little bit of background that kind of brings us up to what you're doing today? And it might be a longer story, but I'll keep it short. So I started my career first in business management. That's my first degree, actually, because I, I, I worked in a company where they have a project involves a bit more programming. So I learned a bit with the team, um, even though it's like my side project, not my main uh, day-to-day task. And I found it's quite interesting. So I learned Java myself. And to keep myself going further, I took the Java exam by um, Oracle at the time. And I'm certified. So that gives me more confidence. And I just like the industry in general. That was like many years ago. I'm not going to give you the exact number, so don't get my age. <laughs> But that was like, you know, since they see Java, right? Then because it's something quite, uh, I found it quite interesting. So I, I applied for university course um, in London for computer science degree in master. And when I actually apply, my lecturer suggests me think it for the second time because it's quite difficult. I'm probably the only one in, the, in my class without having a very rich IT background. And he, he thinks I'm, I'm going to struggle. And it's actually very difficult because I had a full-time job while studying a um, master course in a very different industry. So I probably spent a lot of time in that two years of learning something. But it's really interesting as well. And because I invest quite a lot heavily uh, learning a new skill, that's why doing um, later on when I enter the career as uh, in IT, there are times when I struggle I actually didn't give up because I spent a lot of time invest in this. So I kept myself going. And because um, learning Java and going to computer science, it's a natural choice of, of picking up Android project in my final year project. And I found Android very interesting. That's how I started learning Android. Then I landed on my first job in Android. So you went straight from computer science and then you landed a job. Like, was it easy to land that first job in Android or no? Mm, not really. You still need to prove that you know things. So even though I, I started my first job um, as a junior engineer, but you still need to provide contribution to your project. So that you, you can't expect to learn everything from the job. You need to actually start contribute. I remember my, on my first Android job, um, the first task I got is actually set up the CSD pipeline for the entire project. <laughs> That was really terrifying. <laughs> it's actually fun. I learned a lot about scraping and many things I didn't expect to learn in the first months. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like that's kind of what happens when you when you go on an Android project as like a an actual job, right? You end up doing stuff that's also not related at all, that people just expect you to know because you know how to code, so you must, you must know how to do this. Yeah, and also I was the only in-house Android engineer working with many other um, contractor um, in that project. So I did a lot of um, setting ups, pre-setups work apart from coding. So naturally, maintain necessity um, task went to, went to me. So so the first gig that you did was, that was like a permanent employed gig, right? Yeah, I started with permanent job because starting from contracting without having lots of experience, it's, it's, it's really difficult. So, so that was my question was, so you had a permanent job and then I see from your LinkedIn that then you went to contract for a little bit. So, yeah. so what made you make the jump and then I guess more interestingly is what made you make the jump back to permanent employment? 
I have to say it's it's the job market at the time. I'm not sure if it's because the whole industry trending at the time was towards like working on small project. I think a few years back, um, when I was trying to jump from project to project, I was opening for for project. I didn't actually care so much about the type of employment, either it's a permanent or contracting. I, that's not my main concern, but the project itself. Is, is what things attract me because I want to know, I want to, I want to develop my skill. So jumping from perm to contracting, initially it's because of the project. It was a three months um, contracting role, but it kind of extended to like almost a year and a half. So it feel like almost like a permanent role in the end. But yeah, I started the project from scratch. Um, it's a SDK project and that's quite interesting. Uh, working with Bluetooth and IoT. Stuff. Oh really? Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. How, how did you yeah. find that? Because because my Bluetooth experience on Android has been terrible. I would say that project was again many years ago. Yeah, <laughs> it was quite difficult in the beginning because you don't find many um, libraries, and that that was only one library. That's the only option I have. And apart from that, you do lots of manual setup and customize everything yourself. So I learned a bit of Bluetooth, and I still remember. I think the frequency of the of the signal is like a per second. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we combined the we combined the bit IoT technology with Bluetooth and the indoor um, indoor mapping as well. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, Google didn't have indoor mapping back then. Now I think they have. They, they, you can actually apply for Google indoor mapping um, for a building or something. But back then there isn't so much tech support, so we have to come up with our own solution. That's that sounds pretty cool. I can imagine that being quite difficult if, if Google hadn't done it yet, like back in the day. Yeah, but Google killed us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the only problem with the Android system, right? Is if Google does something that you're doing, then whatever you're doing is finished now. They they actually not not because they are well, first they, they are popular, right? Everyone knows them and also they have really rich technology in a team they can't really do lots of things that we can't yeah 100 percent. yeah and then they could they could also make it so that you know the technologies that you use to do that suddenly aren't available to you or the apis aren't available because we do this now so you know so so you said that you choose your work because of what the project is so do you have a preference over like contracting and permanent i only ask because a lot of people think it's kind of like you know you just you sit on a beach and you do coding and then you go surf and like we both know that that's not the real experience, but there are definitely differences between being a contractor and being permanent. So, like, how, how did you find those? And like, do you have a preference, or or is it purely just whatever the project is? You don't care. Well, money is important. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But project is important, and it depends on where you are in your career. With some people, right? I'm sorry, some people they are in a in a career where they want to explore things. They want to pick up a new skill. They want to start a project from scratch and own the project. So if that's the type of um, career point you are right now, I would say go through lots of projects as much as you can to learn things. And maybe contracting is the best in this case. Or join a company as um, the, if they are providing consultancy service so you can contribute to different type of project. If you are in a point in your life you want to develop your career, I'm not saying that you can't develop your career as a contractor. I mean, I'm sure you can. And depending on what kind of career you want. So if you join a company as a permanent employee, you have higher chance to access to strategy, process, things that usually they wouldn't um, ask a contractor to do because 
the, the role of contractor is to join a company, join a project, and start contributing to the project as individual contributor. So the role of the of the of a contractor is actually probably the most senior engineer in the team to contribute. Uh, as a permanent employee, you probably have more chance to to know um, the process. I gotcha. There, there definitely is a difference because when you do come in as a contractor, they do expect you know exactly what you're doing and you hit the ground running and you know you just code and you make PRs and that's it. I mean, I get. I guess it depends wh- where you work because I've definitely worked at companies where I come in and they start asking me all sorts of questions. But um, for the most part, it's just you know, you're expected to come in, you're expected to code, and then you're done. Yeah, some companies um, they have different policy for contractors, right? Some companies treat contractors as their own employee. Like you, you actually attend workshops, attend meetings, and the training program, right? Some companies might be more strict of what you can do. So, really depends on what you think is the most important for you right now. That's where you should make your choice, and also the type of the company is important. Yeah, I would agree on that. It really depends on the individual and what you're looking to get out of it, because. Yeah, for the most part, if it's purely money, then it's an obvious answer. But if it's anything else, then it's a bit more complicated. So, yeah. so for example, my company, Red Tide, is um, we have we work with different type of of employees, right? And we actually um, treat our contractors as part of the team as well. That means they they actually join um, planning sessions, they join sound strategy meeting for the uh, long term planning for the product. Although there are some benefits that we provide for our um, employee, that's not applicable for contractors. But we, we, some companies like us, right, we treat them almost the same as, as our employees. Gotcha. Can you give me just one second? Sorry, I think someone's at the door. Okay. This is really, really inopportune, but I'll just be quick. One second, sorry. Take your time. Hello. Hi. So we have a delivery of um, gym mats, and uh, this was the ch- the chattiest delivery driver that I've ever met in my life. <laughs> I mean, he's he just told me about how long he's been working there. They retires next year. How old he is? What his wife does for a living? All I wanted him to do was put the mats around the back and then leave me alone. But still, sorry, sorry, that was a really long time. Sorry, actually, that was actually fun. Most of the, the my uh, delivery drivers just put the things at my door. They don't even know. I, I would have been very happy if you just did that, but no, <laughs> still. And I always pick like this. This is probably the second or third time that I've done a podcast interview. And in the middle of the interview, the guy rings the doorbell and he won't leave until he gives it to you. Whereas the rest of the time, they just leave it outside. So, so uh, I'll get back to where we were because I, I don't want to waste any more of your time. I'm really sorry about that. No, don't worry. I think we, we actually finished the question. So it's easy for you to cut. <laughs> okay. All right. Good, good, good. All right. So then I think picking up from where you left off, I know from your LinkedIn that you are the engineering lead now at Tide. So what I was kind of interested in is, so you've gone, like you had a permanent job. Then you got a contract because it was a really interesting gig. And then you went back to permanent and then you, you've gone from like junior to engineering lead developer. So I guess my question is kind of for people that, people that are listening that are junior or mid or even senior devs, right? What's the difference between being a lead and just being, you know, just a developer just comes in, codes, goes home. Where do the differences lie? And also I'm interested personally because I've done both as like, which, which do you prefer about both of those roles? Right. Um, it's not easy to answer your question. It's actually a very hard question because I'm still learning um, myself um, day to day. Um, 
if you have to choose right in your career at the point that you have to make a choice, I would say before before you are a certain age, right, really go for the project. Uh, thinking about what the project can do for you in your career, rather than money. I mean, you will always get money, right? It doesn't matter what you do in, in IT in general. The salary isn't bad, so really go for go for the project itself. You since you can learn. So for me, I joined Tide as a lead engineer um, two years ago. It's very different uh, being a lead and now converting myself um, into the managerial track because being a lead engineer, you still do lots of um, strategy work, but the, the main contribution for you is the project. So um, I was the uh, the probably I was the uh, the most experienced um, individual contributor in my team in the project, and we follow similar um, pro- similar team structure as uh, Spotify because they have a very good model there. So you have like we are working for a financial company, right? So we have payment team, we have team looking after onboarding, sign up, after business uh, service like accounting service. So I joined a team and I was the lead engineer in that team. That was actually very fun. <laughs> and it's demanding as well because you, you see your work, right? Going into production every sprint and you see the outcome of your of your code. But my company, because it, it was expanding and it's, it's growing and we went through the startup uh, phase, now into the upscaling phase. Mm-hmm. When I joined Tide, we have 80 people. And you literally know people's um, face. Um, at least they look familiar for you. Now we are seven hundred. <laughs> so just strangers walking around everywhere. <laughs> well, we also moved office, right? Um, and because of that, the, the the company has to restructure. So the role need to the role have to change. I changed my career from looking after a project as a lead engineer into looking after the team. So that's something I, I have to think through quite a lot of times. What is the best? Um, what is something that you want to do? First, you have to like your job, and something that you think you can contribute to. Right? It's not like what you like. It's it's two way selection. So going from being a specialist to managerial is something I did actually spend a lot of time thinking. And in the end, I, I wanted to give it a try because I never done managerial role before. It's very different from being a lead engineer. Um, although you do some managerial thing, but the the requirement is is really different. All right, so so just to dig into that a little bit more. So before we get to being the engineering lead, right? What would you say is the key differences? I, I guess I'll give you my perspective, and then and then you can you can give me yours. So so I always do contract work, right? But I worked at a place as a contractor for long enough that I went from being one of three Android developers building this product to one of six and I got put in the, you know, lead developer kind of role. And the difference for me was I went from having 90% of my time to coding and 10% of my time to like stand up and meetings and stuff to having like, like I got lucky. I got about 60% of time coding and the rest of the time was strategy meetings and like all different kinds of meetings that didn't have anything to do with code, but you have to be there because you need to know what's going on. And the other leads and other parts of the team, so like the iOS lead, for example, they would all say, you know, they have even less time for coding. So for me, the biggest difference was if I just want to code, don't do a lead role or at least find out, because I know some companies are different, like find out what that lead role entails. But for you, what would you say or what was your experience of kind of going from being a developer to being a lead? And then after that, engineering lead is a whole different thing. So like when you're engineering lead, do you even get time to code? So 
how tight operates now is we split the engineering into different track. So we have specialized track and we have a managerial track. So if you are following the specialized track, that means you will step up from being a senior engineer to a lead engineer. And above that, you're going to become a principal engineer. But that means you probably will spend the most of the time um, into a project in coding. And we don't have a single point of decision-making in, in terms of the project, the architecture, the direction. Everything in our team goes through the community of practice. So we have discussion there as a group, as a team, and the decision was made from the team itself. So being a principal engineer means you are the most experienced engineer in a team, and you probably will contribute more into the direction of the project architecture solutions. But that doesn't mean you're going to make a decision for everything. But you'll be the one put in lots of new ideas because you are the most experienced engineer people look up to. On the other hand, that's where I, I pick is the managerial track. That means on paper, right? The difference is that you, your, your name was allocated to a team, uh, to a project before. Suddenly you're not. <laughs> so the name is somewhere outside a project. But again... I'm I'm afraid to work on project if I want to, but they don't they don't see me as a contributor, hundred percent. So my capacity wasn't allocated on a project hundred percent anymore. So um, my role changed from in- enable a project to enable a team. How to upskill the entire team, bring in workshop, encourage them to do BDD, for example, ensure that we have um, good API design ensure the whole team um, understand what the counting direction is, what clean architecture is, make sure that they have um, enough training uh, workshop. So all that is what, if you are following the managerial track, you should focus more. Not saying you are not working on a project because you have to be hands-on. So I do, I probably don't do many much coding now, but I keep my contribution to the project is um, through code review through some internal workshop. So you probably would do less coding because I do feel like I'm going to slow them down if I wanted to be part of the spring as well because um, I don't have enough, I don't have much time. Um, yeah, code review is the most important thing as well. Okay, that gives me a much better insight into into what that is because I always I always get confused after you get past lead developer because I can't imagine what would be bigger than a lead developer that still involves doing code. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so you, so you mentioned there BDD, which I also want to talk about. So for people that listen, that are listening, if you haven't seen the mobile London talk, I'll link to it in the show notes, but Teresa gave a, a really good mobile London talk about BDD cliff notes for people that haven't seen it and that are listening now. And I guess for me as well, cause I know, like, I know what it stands for. I kind of have a good idea of what it is, but I can't say as a contractor, I've ever worked anywhere that does BDD, even the places that say that they do it, they don't do it. So from your point of view, what is BDD? How do you use it? And then finally, like, why is it important or why would you recommend using it? Right. So first, before we go into like, talk about BDD, right? So it's behavior development. So look at actual behavior, not testing. So many people think BDD is testing. It's not. There are two layers of BDD. One is the actual BDD process. And in the end, the the outcome of BDD it's automation tests through testing acceptance tests, test the behavior of the project, but that's the outcome of BDD. That's the last part of BDD. The, the whole thing about BDD is the process. Give you one scenario of what we see BDD changed our life, right, in our, in our companies. Um, previously, when we need to submit a PR, 
the requirement for that PR is to, it has to pass the, the build machine CSD and in, it needs to code review. And, and in addition, it needs to pass the manual testing from Q18. So Q18 needs to manually testing the behavior of your, of your feature or story. So we need to uh, satisfy three conditions to merge a PR. And guess what is the thing that takes most of the time? Manual testing? Exactly. Manual testing, because we don't have QA per developer. A QA is allocated in, in between different projects. So having them manual testing something, and if everything goes well, perfect. But most of the time, you, you find errors of, of features incomplete. You might have a bug, right? So you know, going back and forth, it takes a lot of time. But doing BDD help in this area. We reduce a lot of time from here. So first, with BDD, you know what you are building because of example mapping. So you reduce the, the, the chance you run into issues where you implement a feature, but it's not incom- it's, it's incomplete. That's something that BDD covers already, naturally. And because of the BDD, right, you will naturally go into do more acceptance tests because of the GERF scenarios and not turn into automation tests. So your behavior of the of your of your code, like someone click click a button, not the actual UI, but the behavior after the click the button, all that is automatically tested. So you don't need to go through manual testing again. I gotcha. So just just so that I'm clear, so the the idea would be that you have an acceptance criteria before you start development and then you build your feature to meet that acceptance criteria. Because when, when you're talking about feature incomplete, I assume you mean something that wasn't thought of when that feature was written down. So, you know, when I press this button, this happens. But what happens if the user presses this button and then slides their finger to the right, what's supposed to happen then? That that would be feature incomplete, right? Yeah, and there's only that much appeal can give to you during during refinement, right? Through, through word of mouth or, or he types something down in the tickets. And very easily he can miss things because he is expert knowing the product. He doesn't know every detail of the implementation. Engineers know, the QA know. Going through the refinement, if you add um, on top, right, give examples. That's what example mapping is about. Give examples for every feature. And because of you give examples, you will find lots of uh, inch scenarios that you wouldn't think of from the point of view of appeal. So naturally, you cover lots of things that you wouldn't even think of um, in, the, in the very beginning of the story before you actually start implementing it. So so in that scenario, who who does, or I guess who is involved in BDD? So let's say I get a ticket that's passed down from the PM that was passed down from someone else that says, right, we want to add this feature where when you press this button, this happens, right? So then in, in, your, in your scenario where you have all these different like edge cases, do, do I as a developer look at this ticket and be like, right, these are all the different scenarios I can think of, or is that someone else's job, or like how does that work? So I would say don't think ability will add any extra in your in your sprint, right? It doesn't, but it does require buying from your PO. So when you do the example mapping, you need to ask your PO to be there. You should be there as engineer, and depends on how your company structure, right? Some companies have QA in each team, so that will be very handy because having the to give you more input. And so ask QA to be part of the meeting as well. So three of them should join the example mapping. But that's all for example mapping. And it shouldn't take more than one hour for each big stories, right? And so for small stories, it probably is it's less. And after that, engineers can actually um, write the Gherkin syntax, the Gherkin scenarios, the, the when, uh, then, and, 
with a QA engineer or the QA engineer can write those scenarios themselves. Okay, that makes sense. So it's like a collective thing, right? Like the PO, me, the QA guy would all get together on this one ticket or story or whatever. And these are all the things that we can think of that goes in there. And then that that's the feature. And then that's what you build to. And then eventually you build automation tests that meet that criteria. Exactly. Okay. And this covers nicely because you got, you're going to have the documentation in, in, in Jira as well. So you don't need to document extra of what your story does, right? It would just... Just by default, it's already there. Yeah, yeah. And it covers when you need to refactor something in the future. So imagine you re-implement a story and after three months, nobody remembers what the behavior is for the story. So having a document covers it. Yeah, I gotcha. So then I guess, is there any downside? Because like the way that you explain it, it seems like we should all just be doing that and it saves us loads of time on the back end and it saves like manual QA so they could be doing something more useful or interesting. But are, are there any downsides or is there any scenario you can think of where you know you shouldn't use it or you wouldn't need to use it um you don't you don't need a bdd if you are working in a spike or working in a task not a story so you, you need a bdd only if you're working on a story which has uh, which has impact for the user but few times many times you're working on for example refactoring or uh, tooling or, or, or enabling uh, libraries that things um, you don't need um go through the whole set of bdd so that wouldn't provide the benefits for all type of tickets, only for a story, a feature that has impact for user. And I would say the biggest uh, blocker to do BDD from scratch is to have buy-in from your company because it takes time to set up the whole process, but you wouldn't see the benefit of BDD immediately. It's very different if you call the something go to production that you see the outcome of it, right? But the outcome really will come slowly towards the end. So you won't say it immediately. And it, it, some company might starting to adapt to it. And the thinking is a good tool. But if the, if you don't say it through to the end, you drop it in the middle, you, you actually won't benefit from it at all. I gotcha. That, yeah, that makes sense. I, I suppose it's one of those things where I can imagine definitely companies that I've worked at where if we did BDD, like if we started to do BDD after two weeks, they'd be like, you guys are just wasting your time. There's no benefit. But if we took away doing BDD, then the end of the sprint would turn into an extra week sprint because there's all this extra testing and we didn't think of this scenario. So it, it definitely is one of those things where it's like when you have, I can imagine when you have it, you don't appreciate it. But if you didn't have it, you would realize the benefit of having had it. You need to set an end goal for your project. What do you want to achieve? Uh, right. So we, we, our end goal for the project is to, to be automate, to, to do automation as much as we can. That's why we kept BDD going because we know if without it, we won't be able to do many automation tests and then we have to go back to doing things manually. So our end goal is to automate things as much as we can. So we, we, we didn't only do BDD, we did lots of other things. So BDD is, is a main part of our automation. All right, cool. Well, I mean, you've sold me on it. So the next place I go where I get the opportunity to, to kind of manage some of that stuff, I'm definitely going to be like, let's do BDD. Yeah. And also one benefit of BDD is you will naturally do, B, do TDD because you did a BDD. Yeah, right, right, right. So basically the idea of BDD was actually to help people do BDD, to help people do BDD, TDD, sorry. TDD was, was their first, right? But we know TDD, we know the concept of it, but we don't know how actually we can do it better. So that's where BDD was invented. 
I mean, I've also worked lots of places that say they do TDD and they don't. I'm going to work. I, I know for sure there'll be one place where they actually do it all properly and then I'll actually learn it in practice because, yeah, so far... This, that's not been the case. TDD is also not a, a tool to, to make sure that you have test coverage either. The, the reason that they invent TDD is to actually understand what you are building before you're actually coding for it. So think twice, implementing things once. So just, just a couple of last few questions. Um, so one is you're an Android developer, I'm an Android developer. Um, and I, I imagine there's a number of people listening that are Android developers, but I know for sure this happens across all the platforms, right, where you have... You know, so for Android, you have all these different architectural types. And I, I know that everybody else has the same thing because when I'm in meetings, I'll hear other teams discussing like, oh, should we use this or should we use this? I have no idea what they're talking about, but I know it's all the same thing, right? So from your perspective, what is your preferred Android architecture type? I don't have one preferred. I really, that's, I, okay, there's no right or wrong architecture. Agreed. And I have to say when I, do interview and ask people what's talk, talk, talk to me about the architecture of your project. And if they start with MVVM or MVP or MVI, I would take some marks away from them. Why? Why would you do that? <laughs> because there's a huge difference between architecture and the design pattern. When I talk about architecture, I actually want to know the whole system design of your project. For example, right? Just example, not saying this is the best solution, but you can, you can discuss presentation domain layer, presentation data layer that covers the whole project from domain data and the presentation, right? And design pattern is part of the presentation layer. And once you have a very clean code architecture, right, and your code is tested, that if you can test your code, that means your code is clean, basically, is decoupled. And the less pre-setup you need in each unit test, that means your project is properly um, is properly decoupled from each other. If you need more than four setup to test each feature, that means there's something wrong with your with, with your architecture. So if you are following the proper um, clean architecture when it comes to presentation layer, really it doesn't matter what you use because we're all doing a modularization right in the project. Each team has different modules. Some team might prefer to use MVI in their module, which is perfectly fine. Some team prefer to use MVVM because they have different setups. Again, it's fine. It's up to them what they want to use. And um, we never actually have a certain rule of saying, do this pattern only because different team have different um, requirements. Some team has more, they spend a pretty more time looking after UI. Some team is doing more of a, maybe functional programming, doing more of data um, setting ups and maybe some AI as well. So in that part, I would say it doesn't matter whatever they prefer. All right. That's a good answer. My personal preference is MVI. So um, if anybody's listening, MVI, I really like it. And it also, it makes it really easy to test compared to some of the other architectures that I've used. But uh, yeah, I would agree that there's no wrong answer for most people. I would advocate that it's whatever you know best, because that's going to give you the quickest route into getting your project off the ground. Um, Because I've definitely tried, like when I didn't know MVVM, trying to start an app doing MVVM, it took me, you know, I don't know, a week or two weeks longer just to get started because I didn't know what I was doing. Whereas if I had done what I knew, then in two weeks time, I would have been like a quarter or halfway through the actual development process. So, And and the way that Google's give the architecture of MVVM is, is a bit funny because your view model, you don't need to actually inject the, the, the framework in your view model. The view model should just be a view model uh, to hold data. But 
because the way that Google promote view model, that you have to use um, framework in your view model. That's why probably made it very hard to test as well. It gets really confusing because like before Google introduced that view model was like what you said, this is the model that you use to display the view. view. And then they changed it to something else. And then they created MVI where the intent, before I knew what that was, I was like, oh, the intent is you pass an actual intent object with like parameters and stuff, but it's not. They should have called it action or something else, but they didn't. So they make they make it confusing straight away because if if you're like completely new to development, you'd get it because you don't have any other preconceived concepts. But if you've been doing it for a while, it's super confusing. Yeah, yeah. Which I feel like they must they must do on purpose because there's no way like all those smart people at Google, nobody turned around and was like, hey, hold on a minute, like this doesn't make sense. Yeah, um, but I like I like MVI. I like the state of from MVI. That's I think that's a part of the best part from that from that from that, from that design pattern because we've been doing some Flutter project as well in in. The- we didn't use MVVM or MVI, but we took the best part from both. <laughs> we, we actually, I wouldn't say we invent something, but we're doing, um, we have presenter, we have view model, and the view model holds a state. So it's a combination of, of, of the best part of, of, the, of, the, of all the patterns. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Just quickly, so you mentioned you've been doing Flutter projects. So how have you found like getting into Flutter and how have you found that experience? I, I started to like, actually um, look into Flutter um, two, three years ago before um, my company actually started doing Flutter project. So as I remember my first day, my first week joining my company and I was talking about Flutter and I was like, uh, my senior people in the team was saying to me, there's no way we're going to use Flutter ever. <laughs> But you never know, right? Things change. So I've been doing lots of um, uh, meet meetups in Flutter, and uh, um, I give my own presentation as well uh, to promote Flutter because I really think it's like a good tool. It does a lot of your uh, coding as well, and I like how the UI is structured with Flutter. The whole concept of of the uh, of Flutter framework is very is it's really advanced comparing to I'm not going to say comparing to. <laughs> It's, it's quite advanced. Recently, my company decided to use Flutter as well. So we are adapting Flutter in one of our projects um, officially. And it was quite fun because you, you're going to work in, not just uh, in a new project and also in a new um, tech stack. Something quite um, newish to the market. The learning curve, not apart from myself, right? I, I see the entire team, they starting to learn Flutter while they're working in a project. So the learning curve is actually zero, in my opinion. Most of people are under engineers. Uh, some of them are from web. Yeah, they're just starting to learn Flutter, and while they can, they're working the project, so so they're learning as they go, basically. Yeah, and it's really easy to learn, especially if you have Java background. Um, Dart language is very is very similar <clears throat> to Java or, or JavaScript. Okay, nice. Yeah, I mean, I've been meaning to get into it. I, I me, and um, um, and Mitch Tabian, who co-hosts the show with me, sometimes we we did an interview with a. Uh, Simon Lightfoot, who owns, he owns a Flutter studio in. I know him. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. So we did an interview with him and, you know, he, he, he went like super deep into technical details, but he sold it to me. And I, and he, at the end of the interview, he had me thinking like my career is finished and I need to learn Flutter or there's going to be no more Android jobs for me. But then since then, I literally haven't had a chance to like sit down and look at it properly. But I think, I think, yeah, it sounds like the first chance I get to do that, I'll be sold as well. So. Next time when you see him, ask him his opinion about the Jetpack Compose. Oh, don't. I can already imagine what his opinion is going to be. But all right, yeah. If, if I if I get him back on the show again, I'll definitely make sure to ask him that. If if nothing else, just because that, that would be fun. 
he would give you inside out inside information about you know everything <laughs> i know i mean the detail that he knows about how these things work under the hood is is like it's super impressive because i like i don't know even the stuff that i do when i'm coding i know how to do i know how to get it to do what i want it to do i understand how it works underneath but he knows all of that stuff so yeah, yeah. super smart he's, guy. Definitely a gu- he's definitely a guru in the industry yeah. of flat yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you said to me earlier, like Guru, compared to him, I'm I'm not even a junior. So, depends on the industry. I think I think he's a very advanced in Flutter for sure, and he's definitely a Guru in the industry, and people know him by name. We talk about Flutter. I imagine anybody that does Flutter, they probably have come across him by now. Yeah, for sure. So, last 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 question, which is one that I like to ask everybody. So, you know, you've been developing for a long time. You've been junior, senior lead developer. Now you're engineering lead. So, my question to you, and I guess it's interesting because you're engineering lead as well right so you kind of oversee more than just being on the team is what do you think separates an okay developer from a great developer gosh it's uh, that this is a very difficult um uh, to answer but if 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 the, the way i describe the things that if you think it, 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 it might apply to you it's just my own opinion right it doesn't mean it's industrial uh, opinion and it doesn't mean that that's what my company think it's just me purely my own opinion yep, on it yep, right? yep. and it's a very personal it's a very personal so it's not, it's not something like you know you think it's that that's the only answer and that's not how we hire as well it's my personal opinion so for me an okay engineer they're also good engineer right they are a good engineer but okay engineer knows how how to implement things so if i give them a feature or give them a task they know how to do it they actually they they able to do some research and lots of um, good information and and the pro- provide an outcome in the end. Either it's a research project, a spike, or a, a knowing a tool, implement a feature. That's what I expect from any senior engineer. But if you want to go beyond uh, that point to be um, a principal engineer, right, in the future, you can't just only understand one thing. So I would really expect everyone to become a T-shaped engineer. So you know, you know what area inside out. You you are expert in that area. That's the I um, shape in a T-shape, right? So basically the vertical shape. So you are expert uh, in one field. On top of that, you need to know things um, outside your own comfort zone. You need to know things um, that you probably don't use day to day. Things that you you need to spend some time understand why. So for me, for me, um. A more advanced engineer um, is a T-shape engineer. Okay, so I just wanted to quickly ask on on that T-shape. So you need to know. So I get I get the, the I bit is you know I'm specialized in one thing and I know it you know inside out. Like Simon Lightfoot is specialized in Flutter. That's probably his eye thing, right? But then fanning out and the top of that T-shape, are we talking about a developer needs to know? You know, I'm a web developer. I know web inside out, but then I also know a bit about iOS development and I also know a bit about you know, Android development, or are we talking about something else? So the T-shape is really wide, the range. You can be a, a very experienced Android engineer. On top of that, you actually know how to do workshops, how to train other people, how to be a good mentor. That's a part of your T-shape. There's no one answer to become a T-shape engineer. But that T-shape, the fundamental requirement for the T-shape is to go beyond your comfort zone, to know something that you don't know today, and to continue learn yourself. So learn how to learn is actually most important. Um, I think that's a key character for any engineer who wants to actually step forward in any direction. 
that's that's a really good answer i like that okay cool so then so then i guess the last thing is um where can people find you online where do you want me to direct them to all of that good stuff um twitter um and i use linkedin and i have my own blog on media so yeah email wherever you prefer to to get in touch uh we can have i'm really keen to chat about um like your self-development flutter android or, or, or programming in general or cloud or anything if you give me a give me a, a talk about things I don't know, I'm super welcome. So I don't actually I'm really like to talk to people about things actually I don't know. Yeah, because you're building that T shape, right? Yes, yes. I started the journey myself as well. Actually, I wanted to give some advice to engineers in Android, right? If you want to um, go further than just Android, I would advise to nerd testing. Test testing is really important. Not because you, your code is covered. Don't learn testing just for the sake of having code testing coverage. Do testing properly. That means you know how clean architecture is really about. Learn something different than Android as well. Anything you want to write a web, iOS, Flutter, um, all those things will, under, will help you understand even more. Big thanks to today's guest, Teresa Wu. Feel free to reach out and connect with her. You can find her on Twitter at Teresa underscore W-Y-Y and you can find her on Medium and LinkedIn and the links for both of those are in the show notes. Finally, if you like the show, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. You can do that either via Apple Podcasts or via podchaser.com. The link is in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash donate caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast if you'd like to connect with me you can do so on twitter at lowcarbrob and if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers and other listeners you can do so in our slack community at coffeeencodingpod.com slack thank you for listening and i'll catch you on the next episode of the coffee encoding podcast